This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the Center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Today we will learn what it means to lead from the future. I've dedicated a series of shows exploring the qualities, tools, tactics, and mindset leaders from all sectors may need to navigate unsettling times and transform order out of chaos. The authors and thinkers presented in this series offer insights and advice applicable to all sectors, including the public sector. How can we lead from the future? What is future back thinking? And how can it help leaders navigate the COVID-19 disruption and lead with purpose? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Mark W. Johnson, co-author with Josh Suskowitz of Lead from the Future, how to turn visionary thinking into breakthrough growth. Mark, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Uh, Thank you, Michael. It's good to be here. So, Mark, uh, reading your book, Leading from the Future, How to Turn Visionary Thinking into Breakthrough Growth, I'd like to know, in your mind, what are visionary leaders and how are they made? Well, I think a a visionary leader is one, you know, I can, and I can tie it, Michael, even more readily with the COVID-19 crisis. You know, in particular, I think a visionary leader is able to see past today and in the next number of years and and look to a hopeful future, one that can create inspiration for an organization or a country or a society um, by being able to make it as clear-eyed as possible, you know, more than a vision statement, you know, as I think we often talk about in the corporate world. This is really a, a clear-eyed view of what could be the best possible future based on Looking out more than just a couple of years, five to 10 years is what we prescribe to be able to bring that future alive. Again, not just uh, some kind of one or two sentence, you know, to be the best that we can be in our industry or we'll make the best medical devices of any other company, but you could actually look to the future and talk about um, what's happening in that future and how you can put yourself in that future. And we like to use the analogy of Wayne Gretzky, the famous hockey player. It's about skating, not just to where the puck is going, but being able to shape where the puck should go. And, and to me, that's a visionary leader who's able to, you know, who's able to um, come up with that clear-eyed view of the future and how, how you fit in that future. And then, of course, inspire others to be, be part of that um, part of that journey. So Mark, how can the developing and deploying of an inspiring and actionable vision be a skill that can be learned? And once learned, more importantly, 
How does it renew a sense of purpose and direction within an individual and an organization? Yeah, well, it can be it can be learned because I think you can you can learn from you know leaders have done it and what are the attributes to emulate plus you know thinking about it as an organization as a whole. So I think if you you break it down, right? What are the attributes of being visionary? One is it's a longer time horizon. So how do you bring the five to ten year just putting yourself in that future and beginning to have conversations about that future. I think there's such a bias against it. You know, nobody has a crystal ball. We're so focused on the here and now and we have biases and incentives that drive us. But the first step would just be to be able to learn this and and to be practical about it is to put yourself and your team into a longer term horizon and and we talk about it as five to 10, it could be longer if say you're a pharmaceutical company or within a government organization, it, it might be needing to be longer. If you're a software company, fast moving, maybe it's not five years, it's four years, but it's that place that of discomfort in the sense that things are past the, the, the budgeting cycle, the forecast, immediate forecasting and all that kind of stuff. So first is putting yourself in that horizon. And then the second is being able to have conversations about what um, foresight you can develop uh, through trends and other kinds of work uh, to be able to start seeing how potential trends can converge, the implications of all that in terms of what could and should be the organization. And then the last bit of this of truly being, I think, a visionary that actually brings that vision into actually something that tangibly happens is you have to get past the ambiguity of some platitude and be able to say, this is what we imagine this future could be in terms of, if you're a business, what's our core business look five to 10 years out? What is our adjacent and beyond businesses could we imagine? So I think having the right time horizon, not just talking about like a futurist, the environment implications, but actually putting yourself into it as more like a strategist. And then the last bit of this to make this practical and real is what does a visionary do? They're not beholden to today and and the way things have worked today or in the past. They're able to make a clean break from the orthodoxies of today and imagine things in in a transformative way. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there, but I will just stop by saying, you know, the classic example we use is Steve Jobs of Apple and who the middle of a crisis was able to imagine well beyond a computer company to a consumer electronics company in, in 2000, looking out 10 years out. Mark, you do a wonderful job in your book uh, distinguishing uh, the difference between vision and strategy. So what is the difference between vision and strategy and how does vision inform strategy? Just to make it really simple and how we described it, to frame this is if you think about vision as really about defining the new game to play, it's being able to say, where do we want to go? What's the destination? And strategy is about how to get there or how you play the game to win. You know, a lot of strategists will talk about where do you play within the ball field, if you will, and then how do you win? But the question more fundamental, especially in a transformative situation is, what's the right game to play in the first place? And that's where vision comes in. So strategy is about winning the game. Vision's about what is the right game. Strategy is about 
you know, sort of operationalizing a vision or, you know, sort of executing, you know, it's the competitive piece. It's again, how do you win and actually achieve what you're intending to do? The vision is about this new game, but it also needs to be, as you mentioned earlier, it has to be filled with purpose. It, it should be filled with inspiration. So it's what gets the organization inspired to continue over the long term, you know, even in the midst of difficult days, like what we're dealing with with the crisis, whereas strategy is more about, again, the mechanics of how do you achieve the inspiration that you've set for the organization. Mark, what is disruption theory? Sure. Well, in a nutshell, or, or to keep it simple, and this is the foundation of the work of Clay Christensen, whom I co-founded Innocite, our firm, together about 20 years ago, the whole concept of disruptive theory uh, is about how incumbent organizations, institutions, continue to develop products and services and do their activities. And, and they continue those with an assumption, you know, that their existing business, their existing organization just gets extended out in time indefinitely, you know, just by continuing to make improvements to it. And where the disruption comes in is sometimes you leave the customer behind or you leave society behind in this onward and upward march. You know, the example was mini computers back in the 80s, you know, they were continuing to march forward with mini computers for corporations, but yet Apple and Compaq and other computer, personal computer manufacturers came in and they came in was something that was a whole different paradigm shift. It was something that was much cheaper than a $500,000, obviously, mini computer that was sold to consumers and it was sold to secondary schools. And it provided access to a whole set of what we'd call non-consumers. They all of a sudden now had computing power in their hands in the late 70s and early 80s. And the digital equipment corporations and the Prime and the Wang and the Nixdorf companies that made mini computers, they just kept extending out their mini computer business. They kept doing what was called sustaining innovations. And they never embraced how personal computers created this whole new paradigm that what we call disrupted and redefined the trajectory of computing power in the world. And as personal computers got better and better and better, they literally disrupted these mini computer manufacturers because all of a sudden now corporate computing switched in many instances to networked personal computers. And so the mini computer just lost more and more share, you know, to the personal computer. So they were literally disrupted by a whole different paradigm, a different business model that replaced based on creating a bigger value or, or a more enabled value to society. And that's the essence of disruption is how do you create products and goods and services that enable a larger population of people to have access that would normally not have because they didn't have the financial means or the skills to, to be able to do that? The example of the personal computer disrupting the mini computer is a prime one. Mark, you worked with Clay Christensen. I was wondering, how has he influenced you and this work in particular? Oh, he was huge, Michael, because, in fact, I paid a tribute uh, to him, as many in your audience might know, he he passed away in January, and um, we had been together for nearly 25 years, not only as a colleague who helped change me professionally, but also personally. And his thinking, you know, back to this whole point about disruptive innovation was really a theory 
you know, that predicted things about how the world would work, how innovation and growth, not just in businesses, but in government and the military and so forth, could be determined in terms of, you know, making progress and, you know, for the benefit of society and for the benefit of, of, of business. And I attribute the book to him as a visionary because it was his theory of disruption, which I think is the whole point of being able to look ahead and um, be able to to make good decisions based on 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 what good theory tells you, like disruptive theory. And my intent of the book was to say, well, you have this theory of disruption. You know, how do you how do you bring that theory and that innovation perspective? to the challenges of leadership in, in organizations. And that's when I, over these years, have put this together that the biggest challenge is, is getting leaders across the board. Uh, again, it's not just in government, but in nonprofits, in the military, and even religious institutions to embrace a longer-term planning horizon and to be more forward-looking as the enablement of exercising a theory like disruption theory. Mark, why do organizations only look four to five years out? And what are the issues associated with taking such a short-term horizon? Now, this is sort of the essence of the challenge. In fact, we did a survey uh, that said uh, of all the companies that we surveyed, it was fully 75% had reported you know, their horizon was never more than five years. In fact, I think it would be you know, closer to two to three years. And on the other side, only 10% ever planned, ever planned eight, eight to 10 years out. And I think this is just very telling, you know, what we have found that what is, is the problem. I think one, there's just the perception that the five to 10 years is a fool's errand. You know, it's, nobody has a crystal ball. You can't get anything that's predictable about it. And, you know, and that, that gets to what we call the vision paradox. Like, Nobody spends time in the future, and, and, and until they do, they realize there's a real power to it. But until they do, there's a bias against it. On the other side of it is the short-termism that we see in organizations. And what we lay out are three things that drive that. One is we're simply wired as human beings uh, to be very much oriented to today and the anchors of today. They're cognitive biases, such as what we would call um, automaticity or, you know, hyperbolic discounting, you know, valuing something of worth today much more than what it would be in the future. And there's a whole set of cognitive biases that work against us uh, wanting to get past the, uh, the near term. Then you compound that as human beings that have these biases that create for organization rewards and incentives. And especially in the business world, these rewards and incentives further anchor us towards being in short-term mode, you know, driving towards quarterly earnings and continuing to try to increment existing businesses and in ways of doing things, even if they've sort of lost their, you know, sort of their value. And then, of course, the ecosystem around that further exacerbates that in terms of investment, many people's investment philosophy and stakeholders and what they do. So you put that all together and, and we fail as organizations so often, and as I said, you know, this ability to look out into this longer term horizon and, and, um, and make some sense of it. So Mark, um, whether it's tyranny of the present or tyranny of the urgent, as you refer to it as, how does getting stuck in today prevent leaders from really engaging with the future? And what is the power of a long-term plan horizon? Yeah. Well, I think we could all agree, especially with 
uh, the aid of information technology and I guess you could say we could we've become more productive, but we've also become busier. So the tyranny of the present, the tyranny of the urgent is there's so much what we call operate and execute before you. There's so many different budget reviews and so many different operational plans to review and and we're just overwhelmed in meetings. You know, I talk about a Harvard Business Review article by Michael Porter and Nit Noria in 2018 that said you know, the average CEOs in 37 meetings per week, that takes up 72% of their time. It's just crowding out the ability to think in a future back way, meaning what if, what's the art of the possible, what does the future and being more forward-looking reveal in terms of how things might change or how things might need to be planned for? How do we begin to build contingencies? All those kinds of things are crowded out by the higher and higher intensity of the here and now. And so, yes, when you combine the tyranny of the urgent or the present with these biases, with these incentives, the only antidote we talk about, we say the Calvary's not coming. The way to break free of that is to literally change behavior, we say, before changing your mind and make the choice to carve out 10%, maybe up to 20% of leadership time to looking out into the five to 10 year horizon and what could and should be beyond what the way things work today and make that time commitment and do it in the sense of dialogue and more of an exploratory type conversation than the typical, you know, kind of operate and execute, analyze and make decision type conversation. So you've got to break free by carving out the time. And if you need to delegate to do it, you need to do that. But that's the critical number one, I think, choice that leaders need to make. Are they willing to plant vision and long-term planning alongside of the tyranny of the present and all the things that come at us and and bring that future again alive through embracing a way to become a practical visionary as as we've been talking about. Mark, what is the present forward fallacy? Well, so let me just first say present forward, uh, there's nothing wrong with being present forward minded. It's as it sounds, it's it's taking the base of what we do, you know, the the activities, the rules and norms of an organization how things work and why and continuously prove upon them to move forward in time, right? We go to work every day and we kind of try to continue to move forward in time from the present forward. And that should be 80 to 90% of what we do. We have to maintain our institution. We have to continue to serve people, customers, and so forth. Where the present forward fallacy comes in is, again, with the right time perspective, meaning as we think longer and longer out, the present forward fallacy is just that seductive notion that our existing way of doing things, our existing business is just going to be extended out indefinitely by just continuing to operate it and make improvements to it. And as we know from disruptive innovation, as we know from the nature of, of how markets and societies change based on technology, based on different cultural norms based on different way governments interact with each other and how the geopolitical landscape changes. The assumption that things just can be extended out indefinitely without thinking that reinvention might be needed or transformation, that's where the fallacy comes in. 
Uh, again, there's nothing wrong with present forward as a means of the day-to-day, but you need future back as that development of a longer-term planning horizon to be able to anticipate and to start bringing in how the organization has to be shaped for what likely, at least long-term, is going to be a different future and a different way things are going to work. How can we put future back thinking into practice? I'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Mark Johnson, co-author with Josh Suskowitz of Lead from the Future, How to Turn Visionary Thinking into Breakthrough Growth. Mark, would you tell us more about your future back process? How does it formalize a way of thinking and a set of allied processes that can help leaders think further out than three to five years and allow them to really anticipate what's coming their way. Yep. Well, the first part of future back is the thinking part of it before the process piece. And, you know, that mentioned that a little bit earlier. It's being able to, in a mind's eye, make a clean break from the way things are today or in the past. An example of this, I think maybe in government would be instead of traditional budgeting, um, incrementing off of, of last year's budget, it's zero base budgeting. It's it's clean sheet. You know, it's a mindset. It's a design thinking mindset, which says we're going to architect something new, even if we ultimately are incorporating, you know, part of what we do in the future is, is, is what we're doing today. But we need to start it with this sort of zero base budgeting mindset with being imaginative and creative and not thinking of that as being somehow not rigorous or reckless or something. You want to be systems thinking instead of just point solutions. So there's a whole set of attributes that I describe about what it means to make sure you're not anchored on the orthodoxies of today for the purposes of this 10 to 20% of looking into the future. And that's where the thinking piece comes in. The process piece is as it sounds, it's, it's starting with, you know, it's the classic start with the end in mind. Start with the five to 10 year horizon and put yourself in that horizon and imagine what you could and should be from a, from a portfolio point of view. And so business portfolio or, you know, portfolio of, of departments or whatever the right organizing construct is, imagine that future 
in the right level of clarity. And then you walk back, if that's what we need to look like in 2030, what do we need to have in place in terms of systems and capabilities and actual businesses or or, or, or groups of operations in 2028. And if that's what we have in 2028, what do we need in 2026? So you're working it from right to left, you're working it from future back. And what you're building through that process of walking it back is a, is a roadmap, but you're doing it backwards. You're developing a set of milestones, but you've done it backwards. And, and it ultimately leads all the way to the present in terms of ultimately what a leader does, which is to allocate resources and make choices. And so you would define what we call a growth and innovation portfolio of the kinds of investments of people's time and dollars and even leadership bandwidth to the kinds of things to continue to support and invest in the way things work today, but also what are you planting seeds for for the future based on having looked in the future the right way and walked it back to the present? Mark, you do a wonderful job of explaining the future back thinking process and certain elements within it. And one of those concepts is strategic dialogues. What are they and how are they essential in the future back process? Sure. Well, because we're talking about the future, which is not going to be about facts and data because facts and data come from the present or a reflection of the past in the rearview mirror, the operative management metric, if you will, would be assumptions. You're making assumptions about the way the world's going to work, how things should be. You know, we did some work with an automotive company uh, at the top of the house, and it was assumptions about where is electrification and battery technology going to be 10 years out? How much is there going to be autonomous vehicles on the road? And what's that going to look like? I mean, you have some data that you can extrapolate about how technologies are unfolding, but ultimately you're making a set of assumptions. The way to manage assumptions in a sense of, of actually developing the list, if you will, and prioritizing what those assumptions are, and then being able to figure out what you do in terms of testing them, has to be through a process of dialogue. Um, it, it's not, again, a kind of an operate and execute, here's the data, let's make decisions, this is a more creative, uh, more uh, engaged process to tease out what are ultimately people assuming in their heads. Um, people come from different backgrounds. They have different biases. They have different just general experiences and skill sets when they come together as, say, a leadership team. And the dialogues is the means by which to identify, prioritize, and deal with the assumptions are, that are going to be made about the way the future works. And it's these dialogues where you diverge before you converge. You deal with the sort of iterative nature of learning needs to take place to uh, get these assumptions uh, grounded at a level by which then the team aligns behind and commits. And it becomes the foundation for this vision and the strategy that they develop. So, Mark, there are two different concepts here that we're dealing with, present forward versus future back. When should we use either one of these, whether it's present forward or future back? And can you give us an example of future back thinking? Yep. Well, so present forward is, uh, as I mentioned before, present forward is absolutely um, a key piece of what any organization should do. So it's never a disparagement of it. It's going to be 80 to 90% of what you do. And examples of that is, you know, there, there's all the reason in the world for many 
institutions and businesses and departments, organizations that just need to continue to extend their existing strategy and and maintain what they're doing. There's nothing that's uh, requiring change. In fact, if they're an early stage company, they may be on a very strong growth trajectory. You want to build and keep accelerating off of what you have. So strategically, present forward is for extending off of an existing strategy, where future back is when you're going to develop a transformative vision and strategy because you need to address a major shortfall or anticipated gap. You can see things are changing in our organization for the future that are going to require transformation. From an innovation, that would be a strategy perspective. From an innovation perspective, present forward is about creating efficiencies, you know, in efficiency innovations, uh, sustaining innovations that we talked about. Uh, sustaining innovations are fine as long as you don't get to the point like the mini computer that you overshoot and forget about or don't see disruptive innovations that can come in. So it's both for performance enhancing of products and services you offer as well as efficiency or process improvements to be on the present forward. Innovation that's future back would be if you're trying to go and create a whole new market, market creating innovations that require new business models. Or say in the COVID crisis, the core business has to really be transformed to be able to weather you know, some pretty bad uh, downturn. You know, it might be more than just saying cost cutting. It actually requires innovation which we would call cost transformation to reinvent the core and reposition it to, to ensure it stays sustainable for the long term. So those would be the differences in the usage of present forward versus future back, both for a strategy perspective and an innovation perspective. So Mark, what are some of the key roadblocks to future mindedness? Yeah. Well, I think one of the big roadblocks is, is culture, you know, team culture, which might be that, I was just talking to uh, an organization yesterday. I won't mention the name of the parent organization, but they said that they're so focused on the quarterly earnings and you know how much they can make sure to keep you know s- smooth financials quarter over quarter. There's just no appetite to ever look past three years. If that's embedded in the financial processes and just the way the work is done by the rules and norms, that's a huge impediment. And, you know, if leadership isn't on board with that to see past that, that's going to be very difficult. So I think that that's a big block towards uh, being future-minded. Of course, we talked about just in general, the cognitive biases and the tyranny of the urgent, you know, just being so overwhelmed with the day-to-day. But I think organizations that are going to be able to overcome being so present forward oriented at the expense of having any forward looking planning piece of this, you need to start with a language. And I hope one of the pieces that can help here is simply to understand that both present forward and future back thinking and planning are necessary. And in fact, the predominant mode will be present forward. But if we can get a language started about future back and that developing a vision to overcome all of this pull of the here and now is the way to overcome biases, we can start having this language in an organization and it it can be adopted by leadership and they can just simply put themselves into the future in the five to 10 years. Then I, then I think the, this cultural aversion along with these biases and impediments you know, can be overcome. And in fact, 
we've often seen it a grassroots effort that middle management adopts something from a book like Clay Christensen's on the innovator's dilemma. And then that can actually make its way up to senior leaders who, who see it and, and embrace it and actually try to put it in practice, at least maybe as a, as an initial experiment with a business unit, say, uh, and then I think that's how change can happen is, is, you know, we first start with language and then we think about how it can be applied in a, in sort of an experimental way. Mark, what are the key attributes of a future back leader? Well, and, and they need this more than ever, you know, I think the crisis, uh, you know, brings this really to light. Um, but it, it's more than this one major prolonged disruptive event. I think we face the reality of the 21st century, you know, to use an army term, VUCA, the world is more volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous as we see the potential for disruption, or not just uh, pandemics, which there could be more of, but cyber warfare, what terrorism could be on the horizon, and, you know, tied to some of the antics about where, you know, nuclear proliferation can go and so forth. I think the key attribute of being a future back leader, or I would say a 21st century leader, is in addition to be able to guide an organization in its present forward way, it's going to have to be able to to be this visionary type of leader. And, And in that, I think a key attribute of that is this capacity to be encouraging uh, rapid learning um, and and really embracing the learning organization, which was talked about starting in the 90s with Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline. Um, it's going to be what distinguishes, I think, one leader from another uh, that can that can ses- successfully lead an organization and navigate it through these VUCA times that I think are here to stay. You know, Jim Collins talked about it in his book, Good to Great, as uh, level five leadership are those ones, you know, at the next level that that demonstrate humility while also having confidence at the same time. We look at humility on the other side of learning. So the leader of the 21st century is humble. They have this capacity to learn. They want learning to be part of their organization, to be able to work with assumptions, not just facts and knowledge, to be able to test and learn as they start to try to plant seeds for the future and are comfortable with the ambiguity and make connections of patterns on how things can change and just don't have blinders on about sort of leading things to continue to play the same game while not being open to that a new game might need to be played. I think the leaders of the 21st century, the future back leaders, are going to constantly be thinking about what's the new potential game to play or the different game to play at the same time while trying to win at the existing game. Mark, could you illustrate for us the difference between your typical strategic planning process versus someone who engages in future back vision and strategy development? Well, to I think the typical strategic planning effort, and there's obviously variations, but from my observation, the companies and the institutions I've worked with, the strategic planning process tends to be run by finance. Uh, it tends to be oftentimes a glorified budgeting effort. It's certainly not done, well, I've seen zero base. It tends to be incrementing off of business unit plans from last year. And usually those business units don't ask for less money. They're asking for more and they're making the case for how that, that business is going to grow indefinitely. It's oftentimes staffed by, by a team. It's sort of delegated off instead of 
the leadership being deeply immersed in the process. And as we've talked about, its horizon is, um, I've seen it as the horizon is, is literally only a year or two out and, and rarely do I ever see it much past three years. That's the typical strategic planning process. And um, it doesn't actively engage leadership, as I said, in a, in a process of learning. The future back process is both changing our mindset to this more clean sheet, zero-based, open-minded view, talking about assumptions more than facts, looking five to 10 years out versus two to three, engaging the whole team in a series of dialogues as opposed to outsourcing the process and just sort of coming in at various points, being deeply engaged in it, and literally developing that narrative together about what's that hopeful future from a very practical sense of an enterprise view, and then going through the process to convert that to strategy and portfolios that then can be managed in terms of investment. That's the future-back way of thinking and process. And um, if done right, as I said, it, it begins to open up really the art of possibility. It also gets us past what we say so many leadership cultures are more about profitability or, you know, sort of managing the status quo versus being deeply invested in along with their boards in sustainability. Um, you know, how do they become good stewards for the long term uh, to be able to make sure that the institution is relevant and onward and upward and that they're focused on constantly seeing about what's the purpose that needs to be imbued within this vision um, to galvanize the organization and make sure it's doing the things that matter, both for the company and its shareholders and stakeholders, but also more and more, how does it help society? How do government institutions continually think about what really is the purpose and, and how, do we, how do we think about how it moves forward in, in the long term to be better stewards uh, for the benefit of the public good? How can we apply the future back thinking process to public sector and government agencies as they pursue their missions? I'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Mark Johnson, 
co-author with Josh Suskowitz of Lead from the Future, How to Turn Visionary Thinking into Breakthrough Growth. So Mark, in the previous segment, we discussed the what and why of vision and that a future-backed way of thinking will allow a leader to tap into its power. And now I want to discuss how the process can apply to the development and implementation of long-term strategy. How important is it to develop an inspiring vision that is fully actionable? And what are the steps involved in doing it right? Well, I think the the to try to break this down because there there are a lot of steps and sub steps, you know, back to trying to make this very accessible, portable, or practical, however you want to term it. The big three steps of this process, though, are developing your vision. Um, which we talked a little bit about, you know, putting yourself in the future five to 10 years out, just doing that and, and, and doing it in a course of a set of leadership dialogues, uh, both about the future environment, but also how you end up shaping that future environment and what the organization could and should be. Converting that narrative, that, if you will, storytelling that inspires the organization and gives it hope converting that to this very much what we would call engineering mindset of what's the prescribed future state portfolio in terms of how each different area of focus in the future drives impact in general, but also financials, and then engineering that back to the present in terms of how you allocate resources across core businesses and activities versus new and different activities that help to transform the organization into the future. That's the vision sort of process and strategy process to to get that to um, priorities of investment for today. The third step then is programming and implementation. And the programming piece is really important before you just execute, because you're talking about developing some things that could be very foreign for the organization in terms of how it does its day-to-day, you have to program a transformation effort um, in terms of governance. You know, how do you lead new and different innovation teams that are trying to do breakthrough things within an organization that's dealing with the day-to-day? You've got to separate them out. So you have to have the right governance. You have to have the right new and different growth structure. You need a program management office or what we call a transformation office. You have to think about a different learning process to move teams that are trying to develop these new and different initiatives forward. You have to measure them in a different way. We call this the readiness to innovate in these breakthrough ways. This programming is essential and so many organizations skip right to execution, Um, but you got to then program and then execute. And so vision to strategy to programming to execution are the major steps of of this future back process. So, so Mark, why jump to that solution and execution? Because I think so many organizations say, this is at least, again, from my experience, they say, okay, it was helpful for us to do the strategy work or the vision and strategy work, but this is what we do. We execute. We're good at execution. And most organizations pride themselves at executing, and they're right. But what, what they miss is just because you're good at executing a core business doesn't mean when you change circumstances and you're talking about a transformation effort, that that knowledge and know-how of executing 
a traditional way is going to be the right kind of execution when you need an experimentation transformation type of approach. So I think there's a bit of hubris that most organizations just pride themselves on their ability to implement Six Sigma, to be really buttoned down on all the different things related to being effective in implementation and execution. And it gets again in the way that, no, there's still more learning to be done even after you've developed hopefully a powerful vision and strategy. Mark, to what extent do these visions and strategies require uh, revisiting and adjustment? Oh, well, this is another key point, Michael. Um, Back to, to the 21st century leadership and management. You know, the days of where you do get a company that comes and says, we got to really do a knockdown, drag out, you know, let's really look into the future and maybe they get to five years out and let's really review and we're going we're gonna to make this a full strategy, a lot different than strategic planning. And we're going to do this once in every five years. Those days, in, in my view, in my experience, are way over. Uh, this vision that you develop and the strategy that goes with it and the programming and the initiatives that you implement, um, that's just the starting point. I mean, it's a heavy lift to come up with that major narrative and, and you know, key strategy to move it forward. And, and it'll take work, but you're but you're not done. The whole point of learning would be the organization revisits on a at least every three months of uh, the initiatives that different innovation teams are underway with. Um, how does that how do they help these teams in terms of what's working and what's not? How does that reshape the portfolio of of initiatives that move you forward in time. How does it help inform what kinds of changes you might do towards the vision in terms of shaping that and and saying that the emphasis is going to be on the future in one area now more than you originally thought. So it's never one and done. Again, back to the automotive industry example, um, our understanding is BMW uh, well before this crisis is taking a full day as a leadership team once a quarter just to talk about the future, just to talk about and build off of what they've already talked about in the future, realizing that the industry is going to be transformed by this nexus of electrification, autonomous vehicles, connectivity, you know, with happening with uh, information technology and digital and um, and business models like Uber and Lyft. They spend one day a quarter just talking about what ifs and um, building off of their narrative and um, the initiatives that are underway to try to address of what, what they see as a very different future. Mark, would you elaborate on the new framework for enterprise leadership? How can leaders toggle between present forward and future back thinking? I think to make behavior stick, um, I think it, you know, somebody said, if it's not routine, it's not important or something like that. I, I, I think there's a way that leadership teams, kind of like how departments, I can, can be really well organized in process and activities and a lot of structure. We find a lot of leadership teams don't have as much of that structure. So if we really want to institutionalize this and, and, you know, make it a way of working and really change behavior, and the later chapter in our book, we, we call it the leadership framework where you literally can 
lay out what does it mean as a leadership team when you're in that 80 to 90 percent of present forward you know what's the focus of leadership what are the processes employed and then what are the decision making milestones or metrics and so present forward the example would be we lay out this graphically present forward versus future back and toggling between them being near-term, of course, and operations execution-oriented, it's going to be a very ordered and analytical process about get the data, make decisions. Is going to be very fact-based and financial. And that should just be explicit. Okay, we're in present-forward mode, and this is how we, how we do things. And we understand our circumstance in our way of working and decision-making. In future back, we make it explicit and we say, lay out, all of a sudden, we put a different hat on, we sit down in a round table, so to speak, because we want to make sure it's egalitarian in doing this. We're going to be long-term and we're changing our mindset from operate and execute to be more about exploration and envisioning and discovery. And so we're going to have a different thinking mode. Our processes are going to be more organic and iterative and creative. It's not going to be this sort of a same regimented type. It's going to be more like an innovation team type of process. And the decision-making, again, is not going to be as much on financials, but it's going to be on assumptions and learning milestones and proving or disproving assumptions as you, as you work with through initiatives. We think putting a framework like that in place and being explicit at it um, and then saying what's the cadence of how often we spend time and for how long in the future back mode, along with the majority of our time in present forward, is a way to give this ability, you know, to have real structure and to infuse uh, future back thinking as a permanent way um, of, of doing things in addition to present forward into these leadership teams. So, Mark, I'm just wondering, how can we inform and infuse future back thinking into senior leadership teams, as well as the organizational culture in general? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I think leadership teams for sure, but but board of directors, you know, the, the ultimate governance of organizations, I think they have a key, key role um, of being able to try to help you know, we describe it the continuity of vision, right? They they should be able to transcend uh, the change out that happens in leadership. And, you know, depending on the organization, you know, I'm ex-military, clearly a lot of leadership changes out because there's constant duty cycle, you know, duty, rota- duty station rotation can be as little as 18 months to two years. So there's got to be some continuity. And I think um, you know, thinking about what is the what is the group that can provide that continuity. I mean, I think the board of directors should be in support of one the way of thinking, and you know, kind of help challenge. You know, is the organization just sustainable, not just profitable? They can be very helpful in terms of CEO leader succession. You know, being able to make sure that the right leader is in place who is going to continue to invest for the long term and not just for the immediate term. I think from the organization, you know, clearly the up-and-comers can go through executive development programs that embrace the innovative nature of future back and its way of thinking along with, you know, being very good at execution. Because again, I, 
it's not one over the other. You know, we have examples where organizations, especially started by visionary entrepreneurs, are really good at being future back, but not good at being present forward. Um, you know, you could see Elon Musk of Tesla. I think things are getting a lot better, but you say, has it been too much future back and not enough good at execution? And, and you know, the organizations that have really done both very well, as an example, Toyota, with its lean manufacturing, its Toyota production system has been a consummate execution-oriented um, company, but it's also created some very breakthrough transformative innovations like the Prius. So you can inculcate this in the culture through executive development and how you screen future leaders, how you incorporate into the culture a learning culture you know, that has a sense of purpose, uh, Satya Nadella, the CEO of uh, Microsoft, incorporated this into Microsoft when he took over. He said we needed to become a culture of learn-it-alls. Right now, um, he said when we, he took over, we were too much of a culture of know-it-alls. So I think making explicit the importance of learning, not just for leaders, but the rest of the organization, all these things come together, I think, to make a much more forward-looking much greater innovative organization that can uh, seize the opportunities of the future along with executing on the things they have to do to today. Mark, I focus on the business of government, not the policy side, but the management and implementation side. How can we apply this process to public sector and government agencies as they pursue their missions? No, absolutely. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned, you know, when we, when we started this process to really, you know, kind of go beyond innovation itself and say we need to think about how vision and strategy have to come behind breakthrough innovation and then behind that is leadership. We realized, you know, the the short-sightedness, you know, just doesn't afflict afflict businesses. You know, governments, as we said, are are vulnerable. You know, we we talk about the challenges the U.S. government has in confronting the crum nation's crumbling infrastructure and how much future back I think could have helped that and, you know, continue. I mean, I think other aspects, global climate change and so forth, we see universities' inability to gain control of rising tuitions. And of course, what's happening with the COVID crisis, I'm getting online and I mentioned nonprofits and so forth. So anyway, but going back to your question, I, I absolutely think it can apply to government agencies because, because what an agency needs to do is to be able to serve, you know, to serve the citizens of the United States and serve local governments and so forth, um, or sort of local populace. And, you know, the ability to be able to look ahead um, and anticipate what is going to be the best way to serve its people, um, especially as things become different in terms of how they can be served with the enablement of what technology, you know, digital transformation, what it can do, how societal preferences change. Um, they as much have a reason to be forward-looking as any corporate CEO. Um, you know, the military, absolutely, you know, we think about oftentimes they're fighting the last war. You know, when 9-11 and asymmetric warfare really um, became very clear. It was hard for the military to change course, um, you know, just because of, as Dwight D. Eisenhower would say, beware of the defense industrial complex. So you're not going to change 
this the complexity of organizations and you know some of the biases and incentives we talk about but it can change with behavior and it can change with this notion that leadership with vision can be made consummately practical that you can start developing a way of thinking and force people to have conversations about the five to 10 or longer horizon and entrust that by having repeated conversations, insights will come and those insights will create opportunities for action that wouldn't have been on the radar screen had you not done it. And uh, again, I think government agencies are just as much about a set of people who are trying to serve a customer um, as any businesses, and, and the same kind of process can be beneficial to them. So, Mark, I want to thank you for joining us today. It was a very insightful conversation. How can folks get a copy of your book? Sure. I mean, just in the simplest way, you know, if you if you want to buy it, it's on Amazon. Uh, it's been on, we just came out a couple of weeks ago on Amazon.com. Again, it's Lead from the Future, How to Turn Visionary Thinking into Breakthrough Growth. We also have a page on our website at insight.com. We have a landing page uh, called futurebackleadership.com where you could find out a little bit more background on the book uh, from that, uh, that landing page. And of course, you can also email me if you have questions, uh, want to continue the conversation. I'm at mjohnson at insight.com. Thanks again, Mark, for joining us. Thank you, Michael. This has been the Business of Government Hour. A Conversation with Authors, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times with Mark Johnson, co-author with Josh Suskowitz of Lead from the Future, how to turn visionary thinking into breakthrough growth. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, you can subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan-Yan Ang, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Next week on a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, host Michael Keegan focuses on leading through uncertain times with Daryl Rigby on his book, Doing Agile Right. What is Agile Method? When and how should it be used? What is Agile Leadership and how can it be used in times of uncertainty? Join host Michael Keegan next week on a special series of the Business of Government Hour, Leading Through Uncertain Times, and find out.